It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I hope each of you had a happy Thanksgiving. We're, we're all living in difficult times, but I'm glad that, that all of us had a chance to reflect on um, some of the things that we're thankful for. I mean, for me, it's a time to reflect on on my own opportunity for a second chance, covering politics and government for the New Jersey Globe, hosting the New Jersey Globe Power Hour right here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's been one of the most rewarding professional experiences in my life and um, um, it's just such an honor to do this job over the last four years and I'm grateful for the chance to be back covering what I love most which is Jersey politics. Uh, Later on I will be joined by two very special people and I'm certain you will enjoy getting to know both of them as I have. Uh, Coming up at 420 I'll speak with Nikki Tierney. Nikki has a a story that can seriously break your heart. She practiced law for 10 years before drug and alcohol addictions led to the loss of her license and a decision by the courts to take her children from her. Uh, Nikki has been sober for over a decade. She can't practice law anymore because of a, a minor uh, nonviolent offense, but she's transformed herself from addict to a woman who helps people in need as a drug and alcohol counselor. Uh, But New Jersey's laws prevent her from achieving so much more. So I want all of you to hear her incredibly compelling story. And then later, around 435, I'll be joined by Brian Stack. He is the mayor of Union City, a New Jersey state senator. In January, He's slated to become the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, He's the first non-lawyer to hold this post in decades. And Brian Stack may be the very best retail politician I've ever seen. And I've been watching New Jersey campaigns for 48 years. Over the last week, he distributed tens of thousands of Thanksgiving turkeys to people in his community. It's a, it's a working-class community in Hudson County, just just north of Jersey City. People there don't have a lot of money. Uh, they work very hard, and, and they depend upon uh, Brian Stack. Uh, there are a lot of great people holding public office in New Jersey, but, but Brian Stack, he just exemplifies giving and caring at the local level, and and, and I want to talk to him about what he's done this week and, and what he's done in his life and what he's seen in, in the rough and tumble of Hudson County politics. Uh, this is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Those of you who listen to this show, and, I, and I'm so grateful uh, that you do, uh, you already know that I've been critical of New Jersey's largest newspaper, the Star-Ledger, for, for what I think is increasing number of epic fails over the last decade uh, or so that have made the Star Ledger a shell of what it used to be. Now, I want to be clear, the Star Ledger has been part of my life for as long as I can remember. Uh, Like many people, I had a paper route as a teenager. I delivered the Star Ledger seven days a week. Back in the 1970s, when I was in high school, I worked for the Star-Ledger as a sports correspondent. Uh, I covered high school sports. They paid me $5 a game, and I am grateful for the experience and the the mentorship that I received there. Uh, In its prime, the Star-Ledger was a truly outstanding newspaper. I mean, I remember... I remember going out and waiting at the 7-Eleven after midnight for the Sunday edition to be delivered because I didn't want to wait until the next morning to read it. The editorial page during the Mort Pie era was consequential. It, it's not anymore. And, and over the last few years, uh, I think my criticism of this newspaper has been for, at least in my opinion, for, for very good reason. The, the reporting staff is a fraction of what it was. Uh, Print circulation is down, I think it's nearly 80%. And frankly, the the quality of the work's been a little disappointing. Beat reporting, it's gone. I remember the Star Ledger newsrooms at the Essex County Hall of Records uh, at Newark City Hall. They've they've all disappeared. And, And it's not that their staff isn't talented. Many of them are. But the newspaper hasn't quite figured out who they want to be at a time when people can get their news without them. 
And and they act like they're still the straw ledger of the past. So so I call them out from time to time. I think that's fair. I think somebody needs to. And I am rooting for the straw ledger's comeback. Uh, I'm hoping that the recent announcement that Kevin Whitmer is leaving his job as the Star Ledger's vice president of content and its editor. Uh, it's going to help the newspaper get back on course. And just like the newspapers like to assign blame to governors and mayors and other elected officials, after 13 years as the editor and as the, the decision maker, Kevin Whitmer presided over the Star Ledger during its period of decline. So it's only fair that readers like you and like me get to hold him accountable for for the ruination of this treasured newspaper. About two weeks ago, Whitmer announced that he was, and these are his words, stepping away from his job at the Star Ledger. Uh, he gave the impression that the decision was his own, but the New Jersey Globe has learned that Whitmer was forced out after he failed to hit some financial goals set by his employer. Uh, He was under tremendous pressure to bring in revenue. And and I also found that there was some funky stuff going on over at the ledger, things that Kevin Whitmer never disclosed. He made a deal with a major hospital where they essentially agreed to pay for a reporter who would cover them. That is a no-no in journalism. Uh, Whitmer also had association uh, director, and and I'm told he tried to kill a a news story. His revenue. Yes. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. So welcome back, everybody. I I apologize. I had a a little bit of a a technical issue. So, So I was talking to you about Kevin Whitmer. Uh, who recently announced that he was leaving the Star-Ledger, New Jersey's largest newspaper. Uh, and and I was talking about some of the issues that I'm having with the Ledger, some of the things that I see that I think they're doing wrong. Uh, uh, I think Whitmer made shameless plugs for more money over the last year. He, he asked for voluntary contributions, get this, voluntary contributions from his readers of $10 a month in order to help them save local news. Then he began charging people for subscriptions. He put everything in front of a paywall. Uh, I want to be factual here. Uh, The Star-Ledger is owned by Advanced Publications, which, according to Forbes, is the 47th largest privately held company in the United States. They own Condé Nast. They own the Discovery Channel, lots more. They run a their business from probably one of the nicest office buildings in the world, One World Trade Center. Uh, in 2020, Advance put together an all-cash $730 million deal to buy the Beijing-based Ironman Group. They invested about $200 million on a mobile games uh, company that allows you to play Wheel of Fortune on your phone. It's not like the billionaires who own the Star Ledger can't afford to fund a better newspaper. They just choose not to do it, and that's their right. They're they're a for-profit business. They have they get to decide how they want to spend their money. But when Whitmer wrote his exit announcement, it ran on the NJ.com website on the front page of the Star Ledger, but it it never mentioned that he was he was ever forced out. And frankly, everybody, it it worries me that the Star-Ledger knowingly reported something that that wasn't accurate. Uh, it worries me. It makes me wonder just how many other Star-Ledger news stories are deliberately av- just, just avoiding the truth. And, and that, is a, uh, that is a problem for, for all of us uh, as we, we watch where the media is going, local news, local media, it's just it's just so incredibly important, and we 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 just can't let it go. We can't move uh, away from that. We've got to support it. I think that's that's crucial to a democracy. Uh, but but I think the people who lead these newspapers ought to be accountable, and I think they ought to tell the truth, even when it involves their own departure. Uh, so so again, I apologize with the uh, the technical error. So what we're going to do is is I'm going to 
We're going to cut to a commercial, and we'll be right back to talk to Nikki Tierney. She is an expungement advocate from Middletown, New Jersey. She has an incredibly compelling life story that you are going to want to hear. And coming up, uh, I'll speak with Brian Stack, the mayor of Union City, New Jersey State Senator. He gave away tens of thousands of turkeys to families at Thanksgiving. Uh, what Mayor Stack does every year is is just fascinating, so please don't miss it. This is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Nikki Tierney practiced law for a decade before drug and alcohol addictions led to the, the loss of her law license. Uh, she's now been been sober for more than a decade. Nikki's went back to school. She received a, a master's in clinical mental health counseling. She now works as an alcohol and drug counselor. Nikki, welcome. Thank for having me, David. Well, thank you for coming on. And, and, and I have, uh, as, as you and I have gotten to know each other over the last year, I just, I, I respect you so much for what you have accomplished. And, and I'd like to let you, I want, to, I want people to hear your story. Tell me, uh, tell me what happened. So from from when it really began was when I was born. Um, we didn't realize it at the time, but I was born with, as I now know, about one out of five people are, uh, mental illness. About 50% of mental illness shows before the age of 14 and another 75 of it before the age of 25 when the brain is fully developed. So like many people, about 25%, I had severe anxiety growing up and I would say depression. I was able, I had a very, you know, strong family. I had all of the support, so I didn't have many of the risk factors that some other people have because, you know, mental illness can, it, it's, it's complex. It can be, you know, chemical or it can be from surroundings. There's all different factors that influence it. But I, I grew up in a wonderful family, and um, what I did to deal with my anxiety was play sports or read. And it was wonderful because I did really good in athletics and really good in academics. Um, I went to college and I was an academic All-American. I, you know, was All-State basketball and made the Junior Olympic soccer team. So these coping mechanisms were wonderful. But when I was 14, um, my stomach ruptured and I almost died. And I needed a life-saving surgery. And right before the surgery, when I was closest to death, I wasn't afraid. And it wasn't because, you know, there was a white light and God was welcoming me. It was because morphine was running through my veins. And so the only time my anxiety dissipated was with opioids. I, again, I had no idea at the time, but I remained, you know, critically. I was in the intensive care unit for about two weeks on extremely high levels of pain medication, sent home with pain medication with, you know, my parents were told to keep ahead of the pain. And then afterwards, not realizing, I kept thinking my stomach was exploding again. We rushed to the hospital and got more pain medicine. So unwittingly, my mental illness, we began self-medicating and self-regulating with opioids. And what we know about opioid use disorder and substance use disorder in general is the younger you begin using the substance and in the higher amounts, the more likely you are to develop a disorder, which is exactly what happened in my case. Um, and in addition, I began drinking, I began using other substances, and, um, you know, the government's definition of substance use disorder is compulsive drug seeking despite harmful consequences. And that's my story. And I went, you know, from being... Despite all that, though, Nikki, I mean, you went, you went to college, you went to law school, you, be, you became an attorney, and, and you were a mother of four. Uh, absolutely. And, and so do I have her at triplets, right? Yes, I have triplets. Wow. Uh, yeah, and... and a no pressure there, right? Singleton, yeah. Yeah, and I got an academic All-American NCAA postgraduate scholarship. I mean, just operating at the highest of levels despite serious mental illness and substance use disorder. It was called co-occurring. So, and that's, that's why I tell my story, not so much for, you know, a, a bragging, or, but to say this can happen to anyone. You can't outsmart the disease of substance use disorder. You can't out-earn it. You can't outpower it. It, it is a chronic and relapsing disease. And sadly, in the end, 
I, I, I lost everything I had. And on a dark night in November, the girl who is always so afraid to die tried to take her own life because I didn't want to live the way I was living anymore, but I didn't know how to live another way. And you, and you lost custody of your children. I had, not only did I lose custody, but due to the incident at the heart of this whole thing, being drunk on the beach at a supervised visitation and passing out in front of my son, the D Division of Youth and Family Services at the time entered a no-contact order. So for a period of nine months, I was not even allowed to speak with my children. Nor were they, unless I should really phrase that the other way, they weren't allowed to speak with their mom. Now, for a part of that, I wasn't well. But for about six months of that, I was well. And then I was slowly allowed an hour here, an hour there. And as I started to get better, we were reunited. But the trauma from them being separated from me and me being separated from them is, you know, long-lasting, and that is part of the whole expungement process. Like, for example, because that day on the beach was considered a crime, I was actually charged a second-degree second crime, endangering the welfare of my son and facing seven years in prison. I, I'm now a felon for life, so to speak, and I don't like that word, but it's what I'm branded. Because I'm a felon, guess what? I can't be a class parent. I can't volunteer as a coach. What do we know about the outcomes of children? The more involved their parents are, the better they do. So here is the victim of the beach not being allowed to have his mother, who again now has received adequate psychiatric care for my mental, use, my mental health disorders, and thus the substance use disorder is in sustained remission. I still have, I'm still diagnosed with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, which sadly sometimes affect me, but I manage them. But I still have the, what we call collateral consequences of the fact that my substance use disorder and mental health disorders were criminalized. And not just, it wasn't just criminalized for you. I mean, you, you I remember you, you told me a story about your daughter uh, getting an internship and and she lost the internship because because you were a felon and uh, b b before you became sober, and and that was held against her. Uh, my children have dealt get the brunt of this, as did my parents and my family. So yes, Mandy went to Texas Christian University, where by the way she graduated in three years with a three point nine eight with a degree in social work, but her field hours, she got um, placement at Austin Police Department, and the Austin Police Department asked a question, do you live with or associate with felons? And she had to go back to her advisor, explain the situation. She also had to live off campus her final year down in Texas. She needed a cosigner, obviously. What does the lease for the apartment ask? Are you a felon? And so, and then again, even our housing, we live in a house that is deeded in my parents' name. My parents paid off all of our fines. I am very blessed that I had, you know, family and friends. The, the kids, like, um, this is, again, can't be a coach. Your mom's an all-state player. Why doesn't she coach? We would all just hang our heads. Um, after COVID, the PPP program, guess what? You couldn't get a loan if you were a felon. So this, is, this affects people. In New Jersey, there are actually 1,088 collateral consequences flowing from a criminal conviction. But the courts have said that these are not punishments. They're regulatory. So they escape all constitutional scrutiny, all ex post facto, all cruel and unusual. And honestly, they make no sense. Seventy percent of them relate to employment. What do we know about getting people healthy? They need purpose and they need to be able to be, meet their basic needs. I have a law degree and my master's degree, and I have been on an earned income level in poverty for the last 10 years. And I'm speaking, with, to, I'm, sorry. Sorry, I'm, I'm speaking with expungement advocate Nikki Tierney, and I, I mean, I want to I talk to you about where you go from here because you, you, have, you, you have emerged as an activist on, on behalf of, of, of people in New Jersey, not just yourself, but others uh, that, that have turned their lives ar life around and, and, and still need that, that legal document. I, 
Governor Murphy said, Nikki, uh, and, I, and I know you know this, uh, uh, that a conviction for a minor nonviolent crime or offense should not have a lifelong consequence. Uh, you have you have appealed to the governor for a pardon. The governor, you and the governor live in the same town in in, in Monmouth County. Uh, what are you hearing now from from the governor's office as to as to whether he will pardon you and others? Uh, I do not believe he will. I have filed for a pardon over a year ago. Um, I do believe that it is not performative on Governor Murphy's behalf. He believes this. He has indicated through his counsel that, so let me back up one second. If you graduate drug court, you're entitled to an expungement. That law went into effect in 2016. I graduated from drug court in 2011. The law is written poorly and hasn't been implemented right, so to date, out of 26,000 people who have been involved with drug court, 6,000 have about 6,000 have successfully graduated. Only 2,500 have gotten an expungement. I am legally entitled to the expungement. I couldn't get it through the legal system. I'm now trying through the legislator, and I'm also trying, you know, kind of go to go back to basketball, the triple threat through the executive branch. But everybody claims to be in favor of this, but it's not getting done. So Governor Murphy will. He has indicated he will sign the law, which is Bill S-2951, out of 40 New Jersey senators, 10 sponsor it, co-part... Co- uh, Both parties, right? Sponsorship, exactly. Then GoPal is, is for you, and, 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 uh, and Declan O'Scanlan is helping you, and, and your mayor, Tony Perry... Every Mayor Perry has a, every. I don't know of anyone who's against this, but I can't get it done, and that's that's the problem with the expungement system. And again, right now we have labor shortages, and this is why it's a society problem, not just a Nikki problem. We have labor shortages. You, we're having our welfare system taxed because people can't get jobs because of these expungements. So yeah, there's everybody agrees that. We should have drug court expungements, but the implementation is where the failure comes in. And unfortunately, the people who support me don't have the power. So um, Senator Scutari is the current Judiciary Committee leader. And, and about to become the Senate president. Right. and Exactly. And he has not placed it on the Judiciary calendar. If it is not heard this year, it will expire. Then Senator Sweeney, who actually sponsored the drug court expungement, hasn't signed on to my law to implement the drug court expungement. So I, I, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I outreached every single senator on July 19th, begging, groveling for help, because not only does this affect my family, I have to tell you, David, and I've shared this with you, it's demoralizing. It's, and that's why I thank you so much, because you do get that part. Um, and it just so happens on August 5th, within a matter of days, you know who one of the first senators who reached back out to me? Senator Sachs' office. I'll co-sponsor it. I'll help you in any way you need. But again, right now, he's not in power. So more likely than not, the law is going to expire. I've been doing this for three years. I've been doing it for 14 years, but three years since, you know, the, the law passed. And I don't know what else to do. And that's why I thank you so much for highlighting this, not just for me. There are thousands of women who have graduated drug court, 4,000. When, I, when I, the judge denied my expungement, she, and I know her, I know her well, practiced before her when I was an attorney. She said, I'm so sorry. I know you can appeal, and I hope you win your appeal. The appellate division patted me on the head. Great job. You're doing awesome. But you know what? We're not going to help you. ACLU supports me. Governor McGreevy supports me. Everybody that has a role in this supports me, but not just supports me, supports everybody, supports second chances. But you're having trouble getting this through a process. Exactly. And I'm I'm speaking with Nikki Tierney, an an expungement advocate who has has been through a lot. And and I have to tell you, I I mean, I I personally, I salute you for for standing up and, and, you know, you, you, you are open with what you did. You're not... You know, you have you've accepted responsibility for what you what you did. You've you've apologized. You've moved on. You went and, and uh, you went back to school. Uh, you can't practice law anymore, but you got a master's degree in 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 mental health counseling with a with a specialization in addiction studies from Monmouth University. I think you got a four point oh. 
I did. I, and, and that was very important to me because it was after years of drug use. And I also have a traumatic brain injury from the time when I was using. And so part of me telling my story isn't just to show that this can happen to anyone. It's also to show that we do recover. We do get better. There is hope. Don't give up. And it's to honor those who haven't got better. I overdosed twice. My life was saved. But for the grace of God, go I. So there's, you know, so many messages. And for the families, to salute the families like mine who have, you know, had to bear this. Like we, we always say, is, you know, kids and I, we're not the beach family anymore, but we can't get off the beach. It's not, we're not that day anymore. We're not those yeah. people. I'll tell my story to anyone that helped. But telling the darkest point of the story for no benefit, to beg for forgiveness, it's just difficult, you know? And, and so that's why I thank you so much, again, for letting this be heard, because I think it, there's no danger. You know, and, and another thing to add, the drug court expungement is only conditional. If I reoffend, they remove the expungement. So I, this is just, it's, you know, it's... It's just sad. I'm right. not working at my highest and best use. New Jersey is one of, I think, six states where disbarment is permanent. I cannot even be a paralegal. I cannot even share office space with an attorney. The draconian collateral consequences never end. And again, as part of my brain injury, I, um, I'm deaf and I lost my sense of smell. And so I say what about a thousand times a day? And every day I'm reminded of my past life. And I try to move forward. I work on self-forgiveness. Like you said, I, I have fully served my penalty. I've, I'm so sorry. I, you know, and I, I have to deal with this every day. But, you know, to, to watch my children suffer, to watch my family suffer, to not be able to have a home that's in my name, to not be able to, I only had insurance. I've only had a full-time job since two months ago. And it's just, um, it's demoralizing. You know, I don't know how I understand. to describe it. I understand. And, and Nikki Tierney, thank you so much for joining me. I, thank I'm, you. I'm, I appreciate you telling everybody this story. And, and we're going we're to continue to watch your journey very carefully, uh, you know, with, with best wishes for, for only success as you move forward. Thank you so much for this platform. And again, please thank Senator Stack because his office, at the way you described him, is perfectly who he is. He is, and, and he's, he's authentic and genuine, and I think everybody's going to hear that soon. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. I'm truly grateful. Thank you. Thank you, and we will be right back. Please don't miss this. We will be talking to Senator Brian Stack, Mayor of Union City, the incoming chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, for next year. When we return, this is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Welcome back, everybody. Brian Stack has served as mayor of Union City since 2000, uh, as a state senator from Hudson County since 2008. He is slated to become chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee when the next session of the New Jersey legislature reorganizes in January. Mayor, how are you? Good, David. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be on your program. Thank you, thank you, and, and thank you so much. I know you. I know you, you. You try and listen every Saturday, and I'm and I'm grateful for yes, that. I do. Uh, Mayor, one of the things that people all across New Jersey marvel at is, is what you do around Thanksgiving. They marvel at what you do all year round, but, but especially Thanksgiving. How many turkeys did you give away this year? This year, David, we did close to 30,000. And I'd have to say it wouldn't be possible, David, without those that help contribute toward the Civic Association and really the five to 700 volunteers that we have on any given day helping giving out the turkeys. I mean, I was out there, too. This year, I just broke my toe about a week ago, so it was a little tougher for me this year, but we were out there enforcing the volunteers I couldn't do without all the hundreds of volunteers that we have. They've done some job from older women to younger women to younger men to older men, all of them together collectively being out there. It's just a, it's an amazing event to see how everyone comes together from early in the morning to late at night, really over the weekend, last weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and then Monday, Tuesday, right up until Wednesday night, we were delivering. And, I mean, Mayor, distributing, I mean, this distribution can't be easy. This is, this is, uh, 
30,000 turkeys, if, if you delivered 30,000 turkeys to, to most mayors or senators and said, here they are, go get them out into the community, I, I can't imagine many can do it. How do you, I mean, how do you do this? How do you physically distribute that 30,000 turkeys to, to, to working, working people in your city? Well, well first we, we do a mailing from the Civic Association that goes out and it goes out to anyone who needs a turkey, and that will go out in different parts all over the district and in Union City, but throughout the 33rd, and we'll develop a list. Then there's areas that we just blanket with uh, turkeys. So I'll go out and I'll blanket certain sections of different parts of each community that we know need them, such as, let's say, in Hoboken, public housing, the senior buildings, the same thing in Jersey City and Union City. There's actual entire neighborhoods that we go out and We'll blanket. I mean, we did, I think I did 40,000 steps on Saturday. And, I mean, the leadership of Justin Mercado, Alex Velasquez, um, and so many others that are involved. Mike Cerrone helping us out. Different leaders of different groups. Um, former police chief Rich Molinari comes in and helps me. Rudy Baez, Wally. There's so many people that come together and really take leadership over this with me, David. I, it's not just me by myself, that's for sure. It's a lot of volunteers and a lot of good people coming together. I mean, people who volunteer for the first time, say people who have been volunteering when I first started giving out chickens when I was like 15 years old. And I'm speaking with Union City Mayor and New Jersey Senator Brian Stack. I mean, Mayor, I mean, you, you, you talk about chickens, and, and it's a good segue into one of the things I want to talk about. You, You've been... You've been doing this a long time, right? You've been you've been involved in in civic affairs in your town since. I mean, what age? I actually got involved probably around 1980. I was around 14 years old. My mom had always been some level of involvement. My mom and dad were superintendents of a large building. My dad worked at Port Authority as a path conductor, but my mom was the superintendent of a large building, 82 units. And I started to take an interest in civics and politics at a very young age when. Um, Bill Musto was the mayor of Union City way back um, in the 80s and, and the 70s. That's the only name I ever knew as the mayor of Union City as a kid growing up. And now you're, I mean, now you're on the verge of, of breaking, I mean, not just, not, not Mayor Musto's record. I mean, I'm, 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 I hope, I think it was, it was Mayor Thoreau that, that's, that was there for 23 years. You're now at 21. Yes. So that's going to make you. I'm very. You've got to be proud of that. You're on the cusp of becoming the longest-serving mayor in Union City history. I, I am very proud, David, and I'm very proud of the fact that I'm able to be the mayor of the city where I grew up, and now I went on to becoming a state senator. And it wouldn't be possible without the people. I know you'll hear that many times from elected officials. They'll talk about the people, but I seriously mean it. I still keep it very grassroots. I still try to keep it very real. And that's the reason I try to meet with at least a couple hundred constituents a week. It's not always easy. It's not always easy to give your cell phone number out to everyone. But I feel that's what keeps me grounded. That's what keeps my feet on the ground and keeps my head out of the sky is really being out there and helping the people and staying close to the people and knowing what the problems are um, on the lowest level possible, which is on the municipal level, really knowing what's putting bread and butter on the table, knowing what's keeps people to pay their bills on the local level, and really bringing it up to the Senate level. I always say before you become a senator or an assemblyman, you should have to be a local elected official to understand how to make it work on the local level before you go to a higher office. And But not every – I mean, that's not an easy job. I mean, I, 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 was, I was a councilman and I was a, a mayor, you know, 30-something years ago. It is not easy. It, I, I was – you know, I wasn't so great at it. I was very young. What? How did you – how did you figure this out? How did you get to a point where where you could run this city? Well, I, I watched a lot of people over the years. Um, not only Mayor Musto, but later on I watched the administration of uh, which were leftover of the Musto Group, Mayor Weikert. Then came along was Menendez and Bruce Walter. Um, I was on Bruce Walter's side. Then we fought for a little bit of time before. I got elected in 1997 as one commissioner. I learned a lot also from from actually fighting with Bruce. I learned a lot from him, how to organize and how to really stay involved with the infrastructure and the day-to-day activities in the city, which is something I enjoy. I know many people will see me as this guy who's a political animal. I'm really not the political animal people think I am. I really love the civics. I really love governing. I really love listening to people. Serving in the Senate is a, a tremendous honor, and I love that, that I'm able to take what I learned on a local level and bring it on a state level and stay passionate about issues. No, it's not easy being a mayor. It's, it's tough. 
And uh, it's something that you have to work out day in and day out. I consider myself a workaholic. I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. But I really try really hard to do the best I possibly can. So I, I, I hope, Mayor, Mayor Stack, that I'm, I don't embarrass you by saying this, but, uh, but I remember you know, earlier this year in the winter uh, of a video that was posted online of you went viral. You're standing in the snow. You, you know, you've got your overcoat on. The, you know, you, you see the emergency lights in the background. There had been a, a basement fire in a building in Union City, and you were out there telling people uh, how to be how to be more careful of fires, how to be careful of their space heaters. You, I mean, and this was the part. Brian Stack, that just, just, I mean, it just it blows me away when I see it. Is is you're just there giving out your cell phone number to everybody, you know, saying if if you need a carbon monoxide detector installed, if you need a smoke detector, call you directly. I mean, your your city is. You, it's not like you're a small town mayor. You've got seven, no. close to seventy thousand people who live in the city, and you're just you're just giving out your cell phone number. I, how does how does that how can, how does that work successfully for you? I'll tell you, David, I receive a lot of calls on a daily basis, and I try to get back to everyone within one day. Sometimes, like over the holiday weekend, it was a little bit more difficult because of getting out to turkeys. It took a lot of time and a lot of organizing. So I'm about two days, three days behind in my phone calls right now. But I believe that if I can go and ask somebody to support me and to vote for me, they should at least have personal contact with me. Don't get me wrong. My staff in City Hall is tremendous. Um, I have a great staff. And they do great follow-up for me. But that initial contact, I believe, has to come from me. Whether it's coming in to see me personally at City Hall or coming to a mobile Senate day or a mobile City Hall day, which is something I move around the district, I move around the city, I think it's important that people know that they can have direct contact with me. And I think that's a big mistake that a lot of elected officials make is they don't stay directly close to the people and stay involved with the people. It's not always easy because obviously people in general can be very demanding. But for the most part, I find most people appreciate the small things that you do in life. And that's something I've always stated. at. I said the day comes that I can't stay close to the people is the day I would leave elected office. But I feel it's my responsibility, and I feel giving out my cell phone number is a pledge I made when I first ran for mayor or commissioner way back then, freeholder. And I said I would stay directly linked to the people and not go through layers of bureaucracy. One of the things that got me involved also, besides knowing Mayor Mostow and knowing politics and my mom and dad, is just bureaucracy. What it takes to get something done, you know, somebody wants a stop sign put up in a neighborhood or whatever. I realized the frustration because I remember being involved as a young guy and trying to get things done in my neighborhood, and it wasn't always easy. And I promised myself that's something I would always try to change, whether it was fixing up parks, whether it was fixing up schools, something that was so important back then when I was a kid, not a lot of places to play. I said, we need to change that, and that's something I've always tried to stay close to, whether it was keeping the parks nice in the community, keeping the schools nice, keeping the streets clean. The bread and butter issues, I think sometimes we all lose our sight of and get involved in sometimes the bigger issues. We forget the smaller things that matter the most to the people. You're just a quality of life mayor, I guess. I mean, and, 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 and you know, we, we, we hear about that Go looking at, at politicians all over the country, but, but it, it seems to me that that's, that's really what you're looking to provide. And quality of life, I, I don't really see anything that's more important for a mayor. It's to stay. If you can't provide, David, and I always say this, if you can't provide good police services, good EMS services, clean streets, decent parks, and good schools, then you really have no place being the mayor. And that's why I say to people, if the schools fail, you blame the mayor of the community. And you'll see that a lot of places now. Even in New York, when Bloomberg was the mayor, he talked a lot about that. And I, I'm a firm believer, when the schools don't work, you hold the mayor accountable in that community. But you have to give them the tools to make the schools work, obviously, and give them the ability to appoint the school board that they feel can work together with them. And the same thing with keeping streets clean. It's so important. We're in a densely populated community. I, I couldn't praise more than men and women in the DPW with the snow operation, with cleaning the streets. And it's something we tried to recognize this year in their contract. When we signed a new contract, we tried to recognize that. They work extremely hard all the pieces that come together on a municipal level, whether it's the parks department, we have great parks, whether it's the DPW, the police department, the chief is very involved in the police department and the police officers. We have great captains right now that are fully involved in the community. We run a program right now. We actually go out, the police department does, and knocks on residents' doors asking them if they have any suggestions or if they have any complaints. It keeps them also grounded. It keeps them close to the people. 
And we don't experience a lot of these problems that other communities are experiencing between police and community. We try to bring them close together. And I'm hoping, Mayor, that, that people all over New Jersey are, are hearing this and, and, are, and are looking at this as, as sort of the, the blueprint on, on how to proceed. Uh, I'm speaking with Brian Stack. He is the mayor of Union City. He's a state senator from Hudson County. Uh, mayor, you've, you've graciously agreed to stay on. We're going to go for a quick break. and we come back, I want to talk about the, the next thing that's going to be on your plate next year. You're going to be the chairman of the Senate right. Judiciary Committee. So, so thank you for staying on. And, and, and uh, to those listening, please, please don't go away. You're going to want to hear what Mayor Stack has to say. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Welcome back, everybody. I am uh, I'm still on with Brian Stack. He is the mayor of Union City. He is a state senator, uh, and he is the incoming chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mayor, thanks for staying on. Thank you very much, David. Thank you again for having me on the program. Well, it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So, so tell me about this is this is really the next chapter in Brian Stack's political career. Uh, you you have been asked by the incoming Senate President Nicholas Scutari to, to take his job, which is Chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, what is what is what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your constituents? David, I'm very I'm very grateful that. Um, the incoming Senate president has asked me to be the chairman. Um, I have to be honest with you. I'm very humble about it. Um, I'm a little nervous going into the position, but I know I'll try to do the best job possible. I'm going to actually need help, and I'm going to listen to what my colleagues have to say, both Republicans and Democrats. Um, I'm excited about the, the opportunity and the chance to really um, shape the Judiciary Committee as its chairman. Um, but one of the things I'm going to work hard on is to really bring diversity to the to the bench in New Jersey and to all appointments across the state. I think that Governor Murphy has tried very hard to bring diversity. But, of course, it's what's given to him as the governor. The recommendations come from the Senate. And I think we all do, and myself included, need to do a better job in making the, the Superior Court bench um, more diverse. I mean, you did a great article on it recently, and it really hit home. I think we really need to make that bench more more diverse more Hispanics, more women, more Arab-American, Asian-Americans on the bench um, in New Jersey, and across all appointments, across the board. Um, I think we have to give the governor a lot better than what we've been given, and I'm hoping that, as chairman, I could play a um, somewhat of a decent role in making that happen. And I think that we all have to do a better job at that, whether it be Democrats and Republicans alike. We need to do a better job. And this is one of the issues, I think, that both parties um, I'm not really a, a heavy partisan person. I think we're all down there to do a job, and I think we could work uh, together a lot better than what we do sometimes. But I think we all need to come together and make the bench more diverse in all appointments across this state. And, just, and that's just, one of the key things I'll be doing. And to be clear to people listening, I'm, I'm speaking with Brian Stack. He is going to be the new chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. You are the first non-lawyer in decades to have that position. And, and, and I should make it clear Anybody who wants to be a judge in New Jersey, every judicial nominee named by the governor who requires the, the advice and consent of the Senate needs to go now through your committee. They're going to have to come talk to you and, 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 and be interviewed by you. What are, what are you going to look at, uh, when, when somebody says to you, you know, Senator Stack, I want to be a judge? What, what are your questions? What, what are you looking for in a judge? I think their life experiences, David, I think what they've done prior to coming up to that point of becoming a judge, I think we could do um, a good job and a good service to the bench by looking at some of their life experiences, where they've come from in life. And when I say where they come from, I don't mean just their background. I'm talking about what they've done with their life, um, where they've been before becoming a judge. I realize there's many who want to become a judge in the state. And I'm sure most, for the most part, are doing it for the right reasons. But I think we've got to look at life experiences. Um, you know, have they been involved with uh, with helping minorities? Have they been involved with helping communities that need it the most? It's just not coming from a great law firm and looking to come on the bench. I think looking at life experiences, one of the things a good friend of mine taught me years ago, Dennis McAlevey, was, uh, he just retired recently as an attorney. Dennis, I looked at as one of the best probably criminal defense attorneys in the state. And I saw Dennis many times take on cases for free and represent people that didn't have the money. 
And I think that's very important to look at. You look at attorneys who come out of legal services in the state. You look at attorneys that have done a lot of pro bono work. I think some of these people serve as good judges also because they understand both sides of it. It's not only being a prosecutor and not only being a defense attorney. I think it's looking at both sides. And many attorneys that have come before the committee in my time, I serve on Judiciary Committee right now as a member, you've seen a lot of good people come through there um, and become judges. I just think that some of the questions we need to do is to look further into that to make sure we're getting a great life experience before they come on the bench so they really do understand the communities that are coming before them. Landlord-tenant court is big, big with me. Most judges in this state see when they go into landlord-tenant court, it's almost looked at as like a punishment or maybe not even a punishment, but some place that they have to go as part of a process, I think we need to change that a little bit and look for people who are looking to serve and want to serve on landlord-tenant court. Besides somebody's freedom being taken away, I think the next, probably one of the top things, five worst things that could happen to you is losing your, your home, losing your apartment. And we see what we're going through right now in this state and throughout this country with the COVID-19 pandemic. And you look and how many people could face eviction come Come January. I mean, it's something that you and I have spoken to offline about and the seriousness of that. I think we need to have judges who are sympathetic to both sides of the coin, to the small landlord that's looking to get paid for their rent and the landlords who are looking to get paid and they're providing a service and to keeping people in their home and trying to find better ways to do that. And I'm speaking with Brian Stack, mayor of Union City, uh, state senator from Hudson County. And, and Mayor, I mean, you and I talk, we've talked a lot about, I mean, we're, we're, we were both political junkies at a young age. You said you were you know, yes. 14 when you first got involved. Uh, tell me about Mayor Billy Musta. I remember him when I was a kid working in Trenton in the, in the early 1970s. But, but tell me about, you know, tell me about Mayor Musta. I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, by David, the way, like you, was was a mayor and, and state senator from Union City and and chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Yes, yes, and I have to tell you one thing about him. He always made time for whoever contacted him. Even as a kid growing up, I remember one night, just from personal experience, my mom being the super of a big building, called his house at like eleven thirty, twelve o'clock at night. I couldn't believe she was calling the mayor at that time, and she told him she had a clogged sewer. And at that time, DPW handled the sewer system in the city. And he got a crew out there to help her right away. I remember my mother contacting him about a senior citizen who was, who was extremely poor and needed assistance with her rent. And he said, Margie, bring it to my office. I remember as a young boy myself writing him letters for legislative manuals at the time. I should have been writing like and uh, looking to go to baseball and football games. But instead, <laughs> I was contacting him and he told my father to bring me to his office. And I remember going to City Hall. His office was on the second floor at the time. And going in and seeing Musto, and Musto's name was like Campbell Soup or like Goya today to the community. Like everybody knew who Musto was. And he sat there for an hour speaking to me and told me it was important to get a, go to school and to do well in school and to get involved in civics in the community. And that's really what propelled me to get involved at the time. And I realized Mayor Musto had an issue later on in life. But I think and even as the federal judge said who sentenced him at the time, you need to look at the totality of somebody's life before you judge an individual. And he said, if you looked at Musto's life, he did so much more good than in the negative. And Musto always took time out, though, for people, even even after being um, after being out of office. I remember going to see him at his house, and he still had a positive outlook of, of government. And, and somebody else would have just said, I'm walking away, and I'm not going to get involved in this anymore. And he was still, you know, still had a positive outlook. He still told me to stay involved, stay strong out there. And he was a person, too, that could work with both parties, both Democrat and Republican. He was. And, he was. Yeah, and he used to tell me some of his closest friends were, were, were um, Republicans. And I, I said, one time told him, I think I may have told you the story, I said to Mayor Musto, who was the best governor? And I was a kid at the time. Who was the best governor that you served with while being the state senator and mayor of Union City? And he said to me, Cahill. I was like, Cahill? And I went home that night and I looked, I sure was a Republican. <laughs> the next day I went into City Hall and I said, you told me Cahill? And he said, I said, that was a Republican. He says, Brian, I worked well with the opposite party. As long as the opposite party helped me serve my Senate district and my city, and I could work with that governor, it doesn't matter what party they come from. He said, we can't become too partisan. And we saw how partisan this country's become and how to gridlock. It doesn't do the public any good, that's for sure. It's good to have your views and to, and to, and to be strong in your views. But at the end of the day, it's about working for the people. And sometimes Senator- we all forget that. It's true. It's true. And I, and I mean, I remember, I remember, I mean, I didn't follow the race that closely, but I remember right around the time of his, it was a day after his criminal conviction, the voters of Union City reelected him. 
Yes, and I was that, at that had to be a testament to them knowing him best. I'll, I'll never forget David as long as I live. And my mom and dad were were not politically involved. They were only politically involved for him. They got involved for him, and they always voted and participated in every election. But I remember that election. I remember being at the victory party. I was sixteen. I was well. I was fifteen, going on sixteen years old at the time. And Mustel was just an incredible margin-in-life figure in Union City at the time. It was a different time. And one thing about him, he was very personable with people. I remember him writing notes to people. I would see him at, I would leave City Hall some nights with him at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night or go to his house to see him. And he would be sitting at his desk writing notes, personalized notes to people. You don't find that anymore. You don't find that specialized thank you note anymore or that special phone call. He would, he would go to people, visit people in the hospital. And he knew everybody by their first name, which amazed me. It was an amazing thing about him. And like talking about working with both parties, I look at myself when I went into the assembly. I didn't know a lot about the Democrat or Republican Party on a state level at the time back in 2004. But I immediately became friends with Kevin O'Toole. Kevin's one of my closest friends today on a personal level. It goes and he's a Republican. You can and he's a Republican. And he's a Republican. You look, look at somebody like Steve Oroho, a complete gentleman. And there's many in the Senate across the board that you can really work with. I mean, across the board. And on the Democratic side, when I look at senators who try to work with both parties, Vin Gopal tries to do it on, a, on, a, on his level. Joe Vitale, a great state senator. And I look to those guys with admiration about how they handle themselves in, in the Senate. And there's many others. Don't get me wrong, but they come to my mind as senators who really go out of their way to work together. Well, Mayor, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking with Mayor uh, of Union City, Brian Stack, State Senator, incoming Judiciary Chairman. Unfortunately, as it often happens when you and I talk, we, we run out of time very quickly. But <laughs> but I, I will tell you, I will tell you this, and, I'll, and I'm not even going to seek your response because it will embarrass you. But but whether I speak to Democrats or I, th- I speak to Republicans, and you know better than I do how many factions there are all over the state. Everybody seems to like Brian Stack, and they respect you, and that's that's very important. So, thank so you, Mayor, thank you for coming on today. And David, I hope thank you'll be you back very soon. much. I hope you and I hope you and your family had a great Thanksgiving, and my pleasure being on. Thanks thank again, you. David. Thank you so much. Thank and you. you uh, thank you everybody for listening. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. You have been listening to New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.